0: Hello, and welcome to another episode of the Sports Travel Podcast, where we interview leaders from throughout the sports event industry. This is Matt Traub, Senior Editor of Sports Travel, and our guest today is Greg Sankey, Commissioner of the Southeastern Conference. But before we begin, this episode of the Sports Travel Podcast is being sponsored by the Esports Travel Summit, the world's largest gathering of esports tournament and video game event organizers, and the only event focused on the travel side of the esports industry. The Esports Travel Summit will be held at the David L. Lawrence Convention Center in Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania from December 14th through the 16th, 2021. This year's conference will feature the co-location of the United States Esports Federation's annual meeting. For more details on everything planned at the conference this year, please visit esportstravelsummit.com. And now, on to the conversation. Greg Sankey has been the commissioner of the Southeastern Conference since 2015 and is generally regarded as one of the most powerful people in collegiate athletics, given the SEC's dominance over college football. But Sankey's career spans multiple regions and divisions across the NCAA, from working in Central New York as the director of intramural sports at Division III Utica College to the Southland Conference, where he was named commissioner in 1996 before joining the SEC in 2002. Though college athletics has experienced changes throughout the decades, this current period may rank among the most volatile ever. Between the debate about name, image, and likeness, and the NCAA's future, expansion of the college football playoff, and more, Sankey and the SEC are at the center of it all, including the earth-shaking news in college sports this summer when it invited powerhouse programs Oklahoma and Texas to join the SEC, making it a future 16-team Super League. We talk with Greg Sankey at the Sports ETA Conference in Birmingham, LA, alabama about conference expansion name image and likeness the future of the ncaa how it decides where to put its conference championships vaccine mandates and much more we hope you enjoy the conversation commissioner greg sankey of the southeastern conference thank you for joining us today on the sports travel podcast Thank you. It's good to be here. In late July, the SEC shook up college sports, extending invitations to Oklahoma and Texas to leave the Big 12 and join your league in the next few years. Since then, the Big 12 has made its own moves, realignment has trickled down to the American Athletic Conference, Conference USA, and Sunbelt. When you invited Oklahoma and Texas to join the SEC, did you think it would have reshaped the college sports landscape to the extent it has so far?
1: Well, I knew there'd, there'd be a transformation. Um, I, I, th- I think it's difficult to predict how everyone functions and reacts, and there's kind of a short term implication, which is the shock maybe, and then people sort through what's next. So uh, I understood uh, that there would be a domino effect. Now, the extent of it is, in thinking about July, difficult to predict, and we're seeing that still play out. So those are. Uh, not new realities for college sports. We've seen this reshuffling you know, every 8 to 10 years, certainly over the last few decades, and I think for all of us, it sets up an interesting future for college sports.
0: In June, the college football playoff announced a proposal to extend, expand the current four-team format to 12 teams. When it was announced, there was thought that it would just be adopted by the end of the year. That process has slowed. Do you have any reason to believe that 12 will not be the number or is it just more a matter of a time to when that is approved and the main discussion then becomes when it will start?
1: Well, it's an interesting question. So if if we go back to June when the 12 team format uh, idea was introduced and then announced publicly, that was done with the understanding that if we started to pursue this 12 team format behind the scenes, it would leak. And so rather than just deal with a bunch of leaks of information, let's just take it straight on. But even at that time, there was no certainty that that would be the model that all 11 of the entities represented in the decision-making body, the board of managers, which is a presidential body, would, would say, yes, let's pursue that. And uh, unanimous consent is needed. Um, so there was knowledge that we would spend the summertime in dialogue and in working through issues. You know, to your previous question, we had another new point of information, which was conference membership transition. and. Uh, We'll continue to gather and discuss the opportunities. It's clear that uh, the majority of participants um, support this proposed expansion, uh, but we still have some work to do with others, and and we'll see what that means. For the Southeastern Conference in particular, we're open to expansion. We're not the ones who've called for a change to the format. We think the 14 format has worked well. It is working well. And it continue, can continue to work well, but we have a responsibility to, to look broadly at the future of college football. And, and that's created, at least for our part, the willingness to explore this new 12-team expansion.
0: There currently is an NCAA committee assigned to rewriting the organization's constitution. Potential recommendations may be as early as mid-November, potentially a, f- a first vote on that in January. Is there a scenario where you could see Power Conf- Power Five conferences go on its own and leave the NCAA behind? If there are issues with the recommendations made, if, if you take a look at it and say this is not suitable to where we believe college
1: sports is heading, a challenge we're, we're encountering right now is if you go back to late July, so July thirtieth, the NCA issued a press release announcing the formation of a constitutional committee in this constitutional review, and it immediately brought back to mind you know trips to Philadelphia, Independence Hall, powdered wigs, buckled shoes. <laughs> uh, but that's not where we are, and and within that, once you once you left, you're kind of historical references to constitutional conventions. Uh, When you read the press release, there were references to transformational change, bold, dynamic, not a time for tweaking. I don't think that's where we are. And so to answer your question, I really need to see what's going to be presented to us in this association-wide constitution. Uh, Several really important elements. One is the ability for Division One to make decisions for Division I uh, with a reduced role in the NCAA Board of Governors, which is an association-wide enterprise. I, I also think we have to be candid that uh, for our conference, uh, given the expectations, the visibility, the pressure, the finances uh, around what we do, that's very different than the vast majority of Division I members. That doesn't predict a stepping-off point for the five leading or the ten Uh, leading conferences, whatever the number may be. But but I do think we have to consider uh, how the NCAA can be effective. Can it be effective uh, through this adaptation? And and that's where I need to see the work before I I jump to conclusions. I think when I go back to that July 30th press release, that led us to some conclusions that aren't necessarily going to be accurate. So let's see what's presented and that will help inform our future decision making.
0: You've been with the SEC for a long time, but you come from the Southland Conference. Your background includes Cortland State as an undergraduate. You started one of your first jobs, uh, was director of intramurals at Utica College, a small division three school. You know, how did those experiences kind of shape where you, what, how you feel about collegiate sports?
1: Yeah, that's really interesting. I'm reading a book called Range right now, which is about... Uh, it's kind of a counter to this 10,000 hours of practice is what's needed to develop expertise and saying, you know, a breadth of experience is really important to inform uh, thinking and decision making. And, and I've certainly had that. You know, I started started it in Utica, New York, uh, leading an intramural program. And I learned that, you know, college sophomores will, will rip the shirt off their, their best friend to win an intramural <laughs> championship t-shirt. And you know, by comparison, we have ethical challenges in high-level college sports. So if we have the trouble we had in intramurals among students, why is it a surprise when the stakes are so high that we're, we're challenged? And we have to overcome those challenges. Um, you know, the geographic experience for me has been fascinating to grow up in, in the central New York, uh, far upstate New York region. Uh, Syracuse was obviously uh, uh, a bright point from a Division I athletic standpoint. But then to be immersed in the South in the late 80s, we lived in Louisiana and then moved to Texas and now here, uh, that provides perspective and education. All of which um, speaks to what we do in college sports still is embedded in education, and we can't lose that that tether. And I, I think it's I think tethers too soft a word. I think it's an anchor. It's foundational. It's fundamental. The young people participating on our teams have to be engaged college students, and they'll all be engaged in different ways. Uh, We now face various litigation and legislative challenges that are forcing us to, to reconsider our thinking. And um, that would be present no matter what my background. But I have appreciated um, the experience at at a small private college, at a regional state university, and now working with large public research universities and and an internationally acclaimed private university in Vanderbilt. All of those experiences that help help guide me forward in, in, in an interesting way during an interesting period of time the second
0: part of a gender equity review of NCAA championships was has been released? What are your reactions to report, depending on how much you've been able to take a look at it since it was released? And has the spotlight the past year on gender equity made the SEC look deeper internally on how it organizes men's and women's championships?
1: It's interesting. I've, I've had um, on my desk uh, a statement of, of uh, equity Uh, around uh, men's and women's sports that was formed by this conference, I think, in 1992. Um, And so we have a history of having more women's sports sponsored than men's sports. We have been very intentional about how we support our championships well in advance of some of the challenges the NCAA has faced. But we have even undertaken, within our staff, a review Uh, looking at the equity between and among our sports, not simply a sport by sport comparison, but making sure that our thinking is consistent with our aspiration to support uh, national championship caliber, caliber competitions for men and for women. When I look at what's happened at the NCAA, I think we're all embarrassed with what was identified in San Antonio. I I think in many ways that's inexcusable. It's a a failure from an operational standpoint, from a management standpoint. I don't think we needed a law firm to tell us what was wrong, but the NCAA leadership and its Board of Governors chose that route. I, I read with interest, the first phase, which was looking at the women's basketball circumstances, there was a media consultant. Uh, I'm concerned that we have to validate those opinions. Those are opinions from an outside firm. That doesn't negate the importance of the observations, but it also doesn't mean they're automatically correct. Uh, many of many of the items we could have seen for ourselves. Um, I've read a brief summary of the phase two report. I think it's 154 pages, so it's sitting on my desk. Uh, I'll be interested about how the, in learning how those opinions were formed, but I still think the same activity needs to take place, which is actual validation of, of an outside law firm's observations. And, and I'll finish with this. I know how to run championships. My staff knows how to run championships. The NCAA staff knows how to run championships. Where we fall down, we owe it to the young people in our programs to look deeply at ourselves And the fact there's an outside review um, should encourage us to look deeply at ourselves, not simply substitute our own professional judgment for how things have to change.
0: Some of the SEC's postseason events have been consistent in its location. Baseball has been at Hoover, Alabama almost entirely during its existence. Football has been in Atlanta for all but the first two years. Then you have events such as softball, which often rotate sites. Men's women's basketball has been to various regions. What goes into site selection for your championships, and could you see changes down the line even for a tentpole event like baseball or football?
1: In many ways, it's facility-driven, and you take baseball and softball, since we were just talking about equity. We, we went through a review my first year, 2015, um, and have previ- previously, prior to my taking over as commissioner, to think about, wow, we have a neutral site in baseball. Um, there's been a facility investment by the city of Hoover that's kept us there, great tradition, but we're on campus for softball. That seems disparate, and maybe uh, one could question if that's the right approach. Yet, what we know on our campuses in softball, we have the best facilities in the country, bar none. We have had investments of tens, multiple tens of millions of dollars to support softball facilities that meet that national championship caliber expectation. Softball facilities like that don't exist in neutral sites. Obviously, Oklahoma City has a unique dynamic, but as we've looked across our region, going to a park... And playing in what is a nice softball facility, but not world class, is not the way we're going to support our student athletes. Baseball, on the other hand, have all these minor league baseball parks and major league baseball parks that um, are world world class on their own, and we have world class facilities. Uh, for baseball on our campuses, and, and so that we can find places to provide a, a high-caliber experience. That's an illustration that I think we have to think intentionally and wisely, sport by sport. So football's been in Atlanta now for over 25 years. We moved from the Georgia Dome to Mercedes-Benz Stadium. Uh, that's an important marketplace for the Southeastern Conference. Um, we've got, we have a contract that will allow us to be there through the mid-30s. Uh, Basketball, really interesting conversation. We used to move it around a lot. We've been in men's basketball, primarily in Nashville. For women's basketball, primarily in Greenville, South Carolina. That flips this year. But after the the coming season, we'll be in Nashville for the next decade. In Greenville, with a new cycle is our expectation. And, And always looking to see how we can improve. We do that because we learned the constant movement didn't give us the feel, the, the kind of buzz around our event that we wanted. And both Nashville and Greenville have helped create this environment that's, that's a championship. Uh, Gymnastics is neutral site. You know, Huntsville, Alabama pivoted in the middle of a pandemic to host us uh, last year. We're we're, we're, we're greatly appreciative of, of their effort. This Friday, I'll hop on a plane and go to one of our campuses, University of Missouri host cross country. So we've had a mix of kind of predetermined and then campus rotation sites. That I think's worked really well and, and been supported by by good philosophical reasons, uh, but we'll always be looking more deeply to figure out if there's a better way.
0: Name, image, and likeness arrived this summer. It has set college sports afire. Athletes and schools have been able to take advantage of it. Are there potential endorsement areas the SEC may consider off-limits at some point, while at the same time continuing to support all the gains that student athletes have made?
1: The, the reality that's a little bit hard to understand by comparison, it used to be the NCAA had a rule and you filed the NCAA rule, but we have states that have adopted either laws or executive orders. And so our message to our members in our 11 states is follow your state law. And if you have questions, they're generally not coming to us. They are going to their state, often attorney general's office, for clarity. And within those state laws are embedded in some circumstances, categories that are deemed off-limits. We've not regulated that area as a conference, just given uh, that we don't want to be creating conflict between our universities in states and those state laws. Uh, That's why we think uh, a federal solution is needed. We need one common standard that's well-considered. Uh, Congress has not been willing to act. There have been plenty of bills introduced by by senators and by uh, House of Representatives members, but those have not reached the floor. We need a national standard. And beyond just excluding categories, I'll just submit if you're a high school senior right now recruited, let's just by, say by 10 universities in 10 states, you have to learn potentially 10 state laws or 10 different policies. And that's really not fair to a young person and their family to, to have to evaluate um uh, that state-by-state state standard. We also have a number of businesses that have rushed in, dozens of businesses have rushed into this space that are unregulated. And so we need a healthier environment for this name, image, and likeness activity. Yep, there are good stories. Uh, I'm not certain that people have dug down to, to examine some of the problems that are present now. Uh, I, I hope they will. We're certainly learn, learning of some of the concerns, and we want to be attentive. And that's where, uh, given the legal environment, given the legislative environment, we need a congressional. Uh, level solution so that we can have a national standard for name, image, and likeness.
0: At SEC Football Media Day, you were very public in endorsing vaccination against COVID-19. Do you think your comments and PSA's recorded by many other SEC coaches has helped in the region so far this fall. And are you monitoring situations in Auburn where there's recent, there's been recent announcements of mandates? Obviously, Auburn has been in the news with Brian Harson unclear about his vaccination status. So
1: there's there's a reality that um, we've allowed individual decision making. So we haven't mandated as a conference the, the the vaccine, but we have worked to educate people. So our public service advertising, uh, my points of communication, our social media activity has directed uh, people back, our fans back to uh, information from medical professionals. At the same time with our student athletes, uh, my observation back in media days was Well, you go through all this practice, you know, off-season, summer conditioning, preseason practice, you know, finish the drill, protect yourself, protect your teammates to the greatest extent possible, knowing they have to make that decisions. And we, We are uh, active in states that have anti-vaccine mandates. That's just a reality. So just like name, image, and likeness, where we have to follow the law, we have to follow the state laws around uh, vaccination, particularly the limitations. Interestingly enough, we're now having universities Um, confronted with federal contract requirements that that mandate vaccinations. And so you're seeing announcements out of a number of our campuses, like you referenced, and several others about vaccine mandates becoming clear, particularly around the federal contracts and legal counsels working actively. uh, And that's uh, against the backdrop of states that have anti-vaccine laws. So some of this still has to play out. We're going to continue to encourage Um, healthy behaviors, whether that's social distancing, masking, vaccinations, a combination thereof. We, within our coaches' conversations with our teams, observe, look, we know how to manage through the COVID environment, but we don't have control of the environment. And as positive, uh, positive is a tough word given COVID testing, but as encouraging as it is to see COVID testing rates drop as far as positive test results hospitalizations decline deaths decline we're still going to have to be vigilant and we'll continue to communicate the need to be attentive to to health including vaccinations which which I've gone through the vaccination process myself
0: knock on wood, you have not had to There have been no disruptions to the schedule this year. I don't know if surprise is the right word, but are you pleased with how you've been able to through the season so far?
1: (laughs) I prepared remarks over the last few days for for luncheon, and I'm going to talk through the COVID experience. I think there are lessons for everyone to be learned there. Um, And I ended with, you know, you don't get to lose focus. Um, Last year, we we had great momentum built up three weeks of uninterrupted football competition then it was a constant cycle of disruption and i really thought when we moved to the end of november that it would get easier and it it became harder and so i take the same approach here we can't lose focus as encouraged i have been about behavior we've been close not not necessarily in football uh, but in some other sports with having to to not play games which will become forfeits in the conference standing so yeah, I, I'm, I'm encouraged. I'm hopeful. I don't lose focus. I'm still on edge. Maybe not quite as on edge as, as I was last year because we're not seeing the positive test results. We have to stay. Uh, we have to stay vigilant. And then as we go indoors, so we're indoors for volleyball right now. That's been healthy. But as we go indoors for men's and women's basketball in particular. Uh, our level of attention has to, I think, exponentially increase, and we're gonna have to be more intentional about communicating healthy behaviors, both for our teams and for fans who seek to attend.
0: Throughout your tenure in college sports, each day when you go to, when you walk into the offices, are you still enjoying it?
1: Well, enjoy is an interesting term. I have not enjoyed every day. You know the last year and a half, I think has been hard for everybody. So again, we're we're speaking around a sports travel. Um, experience and we shut down sports, there was no travel for, for months, and then we had to get back to it. And we've all learned how to manage through. Um, at the same time, I know, had we not tried last year, had we not tried to play and just kind of thrown our hands up and walked away, the nine national championships that, that teams from our campuses earned wouldn't have been possible. The story of Sarah Fuller winning a soccer conference championship on a Sunday, kicking in a football game on a Saturday, scoring points the next Saturday, and then participating in the inaugural events, that doesn't happen if we don't try. Young woman, Madison Lilly, who was the national women's volleyball player of the year, that doesn't happen if we don't try. Kentucky won the national championships It was captured by SEC teams. It was a women's volleyball, first time we've ever had a team. Uh, win a national women's volleyball championship. Those things don't happen if we don't try. We have hundreds of graduates who re- retained their attachment as student athletes last year because we tried, and and that's rewarding. Um, not every day has been enjoyable, uh, but the greater purpose is to provide educational opportunities and athletic competition to young people. And I think we do that really well and without apology.
0: Craig, thank you, thank you for joining us today on the Sports Travel Podcast.
1: Thank you for the opportunity.
0: This has been another edition of the Sports Travel Podcast. Thanks for listening, and be sure to subscribe to our podcast on all of your favorite platforms, including iTunes, Google Play, and Spotify. Past episodes are also available at sportstravelmagazine.com, which features breaking news and in-depth features on stories related to the sports event industry. Be sure to visit us daily at sportstravelmagazine.com, at sportstravel on Twitter and Instagram, and at sportstravelmagazine on Facebook and LinkedIn. Until then, this is Matt Traub for Sports Travel, and thanks for listening.